0: Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. God's word. Let's pray. Almighty God, as you shine on us now, through your word, may we not be blind, may we not willfully seek darkness and so rock our minds to sleep, but rather, Lord, may we be roused daily. By your words, may we stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name and so present ourselves and all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may rule over and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to your heavenly home where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There's a call and response that you sometimes hear in churches or among Christians uh, where the caller says, God is good, and everyone responds all the time. Yeah, now, uh, maybe some of you really like that phrase, and you have wrestled through what it means for you to say it. But others may feel like that phrase is maybe a a bit trite, It's, it's overused, it's formulaic, uh, it doesn't have as much meaning for you. Maybe you've just heard it too many times. Others of you may feel like this phrase is almost disrespectful towards those who suffer. Uh, or, or maybe it, it causes conflict in you when, you when you hear it. Bitterness even. Like, if God is really good all the time, then what is going on around me? The question of God's goodness in the light of evil people's prosperity on the one hand and the the suffering of good people on the other hand has led to intellectual turmoil for many people, including the writer of this psalm, Asaph. Maybe Asaph is the friend you need to listen to today. He is willing for you to see his struggle in the dark. He acknowledges that when we are envious, when we are suffering, when we are bitter, it is difficult to see God's goodness. But Asaph also discovers that he was not so far from God's goodness as he thought. And that the crucial activity that restores his vision of reality is worship. And so I want you to hear this morning, Christian, that if you desire to see God's goodness clearly, you must seek communion with him through worship. let's start at the beginning of Asaph's journey with his struggle in the dark. So that will be my first point, struggling in the dark. Asaph was King David's chief worship leader, so he had probably recited verse 1 publicly before all the people of Jerusalem many times, truly God is good to Israel. And yet he goes on. But as for me, This is his story. My feet had almost stumbled. And we're reminded immediately that no one, not you, not your leaders, are immune to struggling in the dark. No one should ignore Asaph's story today. And no one should assume that struggling is for the weak and the immature. So what did his struggling look like? Well, first... Uh, He said, this is not fair. This is not fair, right? Verse 3, the wicked prosper. They prosper so much that down in verse 7, their eyes swell out with fatness. Uh, Being plump in Asaph's world was a sign of wealth. These guys have an abundance of wealth and food, and so their eyes are just popping out. Right, the, the vivid, exaggerated images that Asaph uses shows us his frustration, his emotion. To add to that, they're healthy. Their bodies are fat and sleek, he says. They don't have problems. They aren't stricken like the rest of mankind. Everything goes right for them. Maybe you kids think of that person you know who's amazing at sports, their parents have promised them a convertible as soon as they get their license, they're popular, they have no acne, and they're jerks to everyone. It's not fair. Why do they get to have all the good things? Why is the girl who loves to make fun of people so good with words? Why is the guy who treats girls so poorly so good-looking? It's not fair. But Asaph says it's even worse because these people don't even hide their evil. They don't even pretend. Verse 6, they wear their pride like a necklace. Their violence like a garment. Maybe you deal with someone like this at work. Or uh, maybe you've sat three rows ahead of them on a long plane ride, forced to listen as they brag about their sexual exploits and their fast speedboat to the young lady next to them. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They openly challenge God. Verse 11, is there knowledge... In the Most High, clearly he doesn't know what I'm doing because he hasn't struck me with lightning yet. Why does God let people get away with such things? Why do the wicked people of the world seem so successful sometimes? Maybe you go where Asaph goes next with his struggle in verse 13. All in vain, he says, why am I killing myself in pursuit of purity when my coworker is laughing at my purity and seemingly enjoying themselves without consequences? Maybe you're a single, surrounded by peers who think it's hilarious that you won't have sex until marriage, you won't move in with your boyfriend, and you won't date someone who isn't a believer. And you wonder to yourself, why am I trying so hard? I try to pursue holiness, but not only is it hard labor, bad things still happen to me. Verse 14, for all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. People make fun of me. I get passed over for the job promotion and my lying coworker gets it. I'm the one who gets cancer and my party hardy friend is in perfect health. This is Asaph hitting rock bottom. He's asking the question, is it really worth serving God anymore? I don't know if I can trust him to know what's good for me. Maybe the only way to be happy is to escape from God. Have you ever wondered that? These are not the thoughts we would typically share in a book that the world will read, but Asaph is a worship leader. He has no interest in encouraging fake worshipers. He leads by example with his transparency here in Psalm 73. And yet, while we are grateful for his openness, we have to grapple with the third part of his struggle here in verse 15. If I had said, he says, verse 15, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Notice, this is the first time he addresses God directly here in this psalm. He says, your children. If you circle all the pronouns in this psalm, you'll find that so far it's just been me and them. His eyes have been focused in and around. He glances up for a second here, and we come to something that kept him from totally slipping away a little bit of a foothold. He does not want to betray his community. And so it appears that at the deepest moment of his doubts and his discouragement, he was careful not to publicly voice his bitterness. And what held him back was his love for God's people. There are two really important applications for us here. First, responsibility to a group of God's people can keep you hanging on even when your struggle has you feeling like you have totally slipped away. And second, transparency does not mean sharing rash, undigested thoughts spoken out of the bitterness of your heart publicly with God's people. That kind of transparency can harm others. Now, Two quick qualifications about that point that I want to make. First, there is a difference between sharing publicly and privately, right? Asaph is not teaching that you have to keep your struggle with with doubt, your struggles all inside and not talk to anyone about it, right? The Bible is very clear. If you want to defeat sin, you must share with others. You must bring those things into the light. Uh, We need people praying for us, weeping with us, sending Bible verses to us. If you feel stuck, widen the circle. Do it wisely and carefully, but do it. Find wise counselors who will listen, who will wait, and then who will begin to speak. Secondly, Asaph is okay with sharing his struggle later on, right? That's exactly what he's doing here in this psalm. He's sharing his doubts and his fears, but it's after he has worked them through with the Lord and with wise counselors. And so he has uh, a, a clear and a helpful goal for sharing these things. He wants to build God's children up, not harm them. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 16 to 17. Here, Asaph transitions out of his struggle. And so we turn to my second point, worship in the light. Worship in the light. Sometimes you'll hear people say when they are struggling with sin or with doubts, like Asaph here, they just need to take a break from church for a while. Psalm 73 is a crystal clear rejection of that idea. If you try to understand the hardest of questions, is God truly good? And if so, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? Without seeking God in worship, you will find it to be a wearisome task. That's what Asaph says in verse 16. I tried to figure this all out in my own head, but it was exhausting until I went into the sanctuary of God. Think about the book of Job, right? Job is struggling with these exact same questions. It does not feel like God is good to him. And so we get chapter after chapter of of him and his friends struggling and complaining and worrying and arguing about this until God in his mercy comes to Job and gives him a glimpse of himself. And it's that vision of the Lord that reboots Job's entire understanding of the world. This is a real dilemma for many people because to come to the Lord in worship is an act of submission. But people want to have it all worked out in their heads before they submit. The foolishness of this approach is as simple as recognizing the appalling limits of the human brain. How can you possibly figure it all out in your own head first? Can you reach your mind around all the possibilities and account for all the variables of this universe with its seen and unseen wonders? Is there some human out there smarter than you that you could trust to do that for you? And then there's that problem that our brains don't always work Correctly, do they? They deceive us. They're sinful. Our flesh betrays us. Friends, submission in worship to the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. That's why Asaph was lost in darkness until he entered the place of worship. And he looked up. Now, let me be clear about my exegesis here. When Asaph says he went into the sanctuary of God, we have to ask ourselves, right? Well, what does that mean for us? Well, the sanctuary of God was a physical location people entered in order to worship God. Now, we are not connected to specific locations the way the people of Israel were, and so this sanctuary can be anywhere that facilitates worship of the Lord. And further, this worship can be personal, it could be in small groups, and it can be corporate. But, let me say that of those three, uh, corporate worship is presented in the Bible as by far the most important and the most uh, common way of worshiping the Lord. And so the most direct application of this text is joining with God's people whenever they get together to worship. This must be a priority for you and your family. Worship is the place of clarity. It ought to take priority over every other event in your lives. You need to challenge yourselves with this. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this very directly. People who neglect attendance at the house of God are not only being unscriptural. Let me put it bluntly. They are fools. My experience in ministry has taught me that those who are least regular in their attendance are the ones who are most troubled by problems and perplexities. It is a very foolish Christian who does not attend the sanctuary of God as often as he possibly can. Now, that may seem very strong to some of you, right? But it's a fair application. Of what God is teaching us here. The fulcrum of Asaph's entire story is his decision to enter the place of worship. Why would you not prioritize such an important activity? But let's move now to look at what it is that the psalmist sees in the place of worship. What What changes his view of God's goodness? And so my third point will be seeing God's goodness. Seeing God's goodness. There are are three things that Asaph sees differently after worship. He sees the wicked differently, he sees himself differently, and he sees the Lord differently. So first, the wicked. Asaph says at the end of verse 17, then I discerned their end. When he just looked around, he saw through blinders. He needed to look up. He needed to see a holy, a sovereign, a just God in order to understand what was going on. And so verse 18 tells us that God sets the wicked where they are. And they may be very high up in the world indeed, but he says they are not on solid ground. They're like the car at the end of the chase scene in the movies where it screeches to a halt half on half off a cliff, right? Teetering on the edge and you're saying, get out, get out, hurry, hurry. Their prosperity, their security, it's like a dream that seems rational when you're asleep, right? But when you wake, it is totally irrational and, and silly, you wake up and you realize that the world they live in belongs to God. This realization should move us from envy to pity. From uh, frustration, from anger uh, to compassion. Perspective begins to free us from bitterness. Bitterness. But we need to see ourselves differently too. Asaph turns to humble confession in verses 21 to 22. He says, I was like a beast towards you. His his confession is so creative. Uh, Beasts can only care for the physical things that are right in front of them. They, They have no vision of the future or the spiritual realities that surround them. They speak without knowledge, truth, beauty, and virtue are of no value to them. Which is not the case for humans, right, who are made in God's image. But when we fall into bitterness and sin, our vision narrows. And we begin to resemble beasts on those days when everything seems to be going wrong, do you begin to act like a beast towards those around you? All the goodness sucked out of your life. You can't even see it anymore. It's there, but you can't see it. You're blind. Well, restoration occurs when you enter the Lord's sanctuary and confess your beastliness to him. Finally, Asaph sees the Lord differently. And it's his vision of the Lord in worship that allows him to see everything else differently and, and clearly. You, you must look up in order to understand everything that's around you and inside of you. Beginning at verse 18, Asaph says you or your 16 times. And Remember I said earlier that he only said it once before that, once in verse 15. All of a sudden, he can see the Lord. He's speaking to the Lord. And so he says in verse 23, And nevertheless, I am continually with you. That is, despite my beastliness, nevertheless, your presence remains. Right? This realization is what makes God's goodness so amazing and so real to us and not just another attribute in a list of attributes. When we see our sin truly, that we are like a beast towards God, but then recognize that nevertheless he is still present with us, then we see God's goodness. And and notice how comprehensive God's presence is here in these verses. Asaph says, you hold my right hand. God's right there. Even when Asaph couldn't see him, right? When he was blind to God's presence, during his struggle in the dark, when he was acting like a beast, God was there. He was with him continually. He says, you guide me with your counsel. God is there, and not just in the present. God is there in the future. He is there. Along your path, leading and guiding you. And he says, you will receive me to glory. God is there to welcome you at the end of the path and forevermore. He holds, he guides, he receives you. This is a comprehensive presence not wavering not conditional presence you can hit the zoom button as long as you want god is still there with you there's actually a beautiful trinitarian image that emerges here when we take into account what the rest of the bible tells us about the persons of the trinity Uh, so the the three verbs here right that i just mentioned are holds guides and receives well the work of the father is to hold you. John ten twenty-nine. The Spirit guides you. John 16, 13. And the Son receives you. John 14, 2 to 3. All the persons of God engaged in the work of being with you. It's this nearness that confirms God's goodness to the psalmist. He says in verse 28, for me it is good to be near God. He began with an affirmation that God is good. He describes his struggle and then he ends by acknowledging that now he can see God's goodness. God is comprehensively near to him and that is a good thing. But you know what? There's an even deeper song that Asaph is singing here about God's goodness. God is not just near Asaph. He doesn't simply stand next to him and touch him, although that is already quite miraculous to consider. But There's more to God's goodness. He gives himself to his people. Asaph says, God is his strength. God is his portion. God is his refuge. God is the one who stands in heaven for him. And because of that, God is the one thing that he desires above all other things. This is the extreme pinnacle of belief in God that the psalmist takes us to. These are difficult words for earthbound creatures to say. There is nothing I desire besides you. And yet Asaph is describing the gospel. God giving himself to us. There is no place where God's goodness is more undeniable than in his choice to come, to die in our place, and to make us his own. That's how he is our refuge. That's how he is our portion. That's how he is our strength. There is no gift better than Jesus as your Savior. And truly, if you do not accept this gift, you cannot know the goodness of God. And so Asaph says, the one good thing in this world that I cannot lose is you, O God. And he proclaims the gospel to us. Your flesh and your heart will fail. They failed Asaph. They failed you before and they will fail you again. If you want something that is truly good, there is no other place to which you can go than Jesus. And there is nothing you should hold tighter to than Jesus. Which brings us right back to the importance of worship because it is in worship that we see our Lord and his goodness most clearly. And so, Christian, when dark... Questions surround you and you taste the bitterness of Asaph. Follow him. Go into the sanctuary of God. There in worship, when you see the Lord's glory, the order of the world takes shape and the goodness of God becomes your delight. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, Lord, for your goodness to us. And we recognize, Lord, that we do not always see it clearly. There are hard questions that we face in this world that lead us into envy and bitterness, Lord, just like Asaph. Lord, help us to follow him as he goes into the sanctuary to worship you. Grant us a vision of who you are, Lord. May we not be forever looking in and around, Father, but start by looking up that we might fear you, the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, a foundation for our lives. And in fearing you, we might worship you and be grateful and delight in your goodness to us, Lord, for you are present with us. And Lord, you have given yourself to us as our Savior, as our King, as our Father, and as our Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.